Good morning. Uh, if you could stand up for me uh, as we read the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, scripture today is coming from uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 10 to 12. I looked out and got a small, uh, short verse. So. <laughs> All right. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nate. Praise God for the word. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Pat. All right, let's go with the good morning. Did not see that coming. I, I, I love that. Oh, man. Well, there goes my whole train of thought. I feel so loved right now. Uh, it's a beautiful Sunday, beautiful day uh, to, to worship the risen Jesus. Uh, if you're joining us online, uh, uh, checking us out, or if you're joining us in person, uh, trying to figure out what we are about, what we're doing here, uh, we're about making disciples uh, who are being transformed by the gospel. That is uh, our mission here at the Springs. That's why we exist. And, and in that statement, there's a, a few familiar words that maybe if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've heard. Or maybe you're new to the church, and, and these words kind of sound unfamiliar, like, like disciple. What is, what is a disciple? Uh, we believe a disciple is a follower of Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who is being with Jesus and, and becoming more like Jesus in every single area of life. And so we want to grow as followers of Jesus and, and grow in becoming more like Jesus and looking more like him in every single area of life, from staying at home with the kids and being a parent, to working in the office, to chefing it up wherever you may live or work, every single area. We want to live like Jesus and be with Jesus. And so we believe that the gospel is this good news of the kingdom of God. Now, one of the ways we say this is we kind of sum this up in a a really brief statement. You've heard it before, that the gospel is the good news that God became man in Christ Jesus. He lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, rose again from the dead three days later, offering uh, new life to all those who placed their faith in him and turned from their sin. Uh, Now, that's called the essential gospel because it includes all the essentials of the good news of Jesus, uh, the life, death, and resurrection. But the gospel is also the good news of Jesus and everything that Jesus did and everything that he's made available for us. So when we say we want to be followers of Jesus who are transformed by the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus offer for us new life in Christ. We get new identity, new relationship. One of the greatest gifts is uh, eternal union with God. But also, the gospel speaks to what we are becoming. We are becoming more like Jesus, growing in his family. So not only are our sins forgiven, not only does our identity change, not only are we brought into the family of God, but we're growing and becoming more and more like him. It's this tension between uh, I am identified with Christ and I'm growing to become more and more like him. And we believe that for the rest of our lives, we'll be entering into this transformation. Now, we don't pursue transformation so that you can sleep better at night. 
Uh, we don't pursue transformation so that you can feel better about yourself. We don't pursue transformation so that you can minimize the mess that you've made in your life. No, we pursue transformation so that we can live the way that God intended for us to live. When we examined the Beatitudes uh, last week, we said, blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they shall see God. Now, the heart is this, this center in the in Hebrew thought of the, of the mind, will, and emotions. You see, visually, you see through your eyes, you take in light and you get images, but we primarily see the world through our heart. Our, our, our feelings, our emotions, our, our perspective, our background all influences how we see the world and how we interact in the world. It's the reason why I, I, I can go to an art museum and be completely blown away by some random masterpiece, but my wife is like, man, that's kind of basic. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? This is awesome. It's only happened once. Um, we see the world differently. Our, our experiences, our, our emotions, our feelings, our perspective shape the way we see things. And one thing that the scripture makes absolutely clear is that every single person's heart in this room has been corrupted by sin. And so we don't see the, way, the world the way God sees the world. And the beautiful things that God has given us, we don't see them oftentimes as gifts from God. We see them as, as, thing, as things that we want and that we need for our own selfish pleasure instead of tools to glorify him. Our heart has been corrupted by sin. And as a result, the way we see the world oftentimes is tainted. And, and the heart that's corrupted by sin has trouble seeing God because it doesn't naturally move towards God. It just doesn't naturally happen. And the heart that's corrupted and broken by sin produces brokenness and corruption out there. It's why we've said the reason we see wars out there is because there's a war in here. The reason we see issues and problems is because out there is because it's in here coming outside of us, tainting the world around us. Now, the bad news is, is that there's no earthly filter strong enough that can purify the human heart. No amount of good efforts or good works can transform this mechanism of sin that has tainted us. But the good news of the kingdom of God is that God's plan for the heart is complete transformation. Uh, uh, such a radical transformation that the scripture says he gives us a new heart. And when we think about this word transformation, the Greek word, the idea is metamorphosis. And we're most familiar with a caterpillar going into a cocoon and then coming out of that cocoon, a completely transformed being. It's now a butterfly. In the same way, when we go into Christ with all of our sinfulness, with all of our brokenness, with all of our lives entangled by sin, we come out of Christ a completely new being, a transformed heart and a transformed life. So our lives are going into Christ and they come out a completely new person and a transformed heart is awakened to new life. This was God's plan from the beginning, that we would experience life with him, that we would live in union with him. But listen, he doesn't just transform us, like I said, so that we can feel better about ourselves and be identified with Christ. He transforms us from the inside out so we can transform the world around us. He transforms us so we can bring about transformation out there. So when you come into Christ and you become a Christian, it is not this solitary experience, but now you're commissioned by God to go out into all the world and make much of his name as you push back the kingdom of darkness and you are a light in every single area of life. 
partnering with God, pushing back darkness, bringing his kingdom everywhere. Now, the reason I bring this up and the reason why I'm spending a little bit of time here is because there's two subtle sins that every single believer will be confronted with that will hinder your transformation. There are two subtle sins that we will all face and confront that will serve as barriers that will keep you from experiencing life with God. Two sins that history has shown over and over again have derailed and ravaged the church. Two sins that the enemy will use to get you to reject God and live in bitterness and despair. Two sins that God can redeem if you allow him to bring about greater transformation in your life. What are these two sins? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Uh, if we're, I want everybody to look at the word with me. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, Thaddeus is going to uh, look out for your hand. Shoot your hand up in the air. We'll put a physical Bible in your hand. Uh, we are a Bible church. And so every Sunday, bring your, right here in the middle row, we could use a Bible over here. We're a Bible church. So every Sunday, bring your Bible, okay? Uh, there's something powerful and transformative about looking in the word. I'm not a scientist, but all the scientists say looking at the blue screen uh, doesn't help us and it's kind of distracting. Uh, so I, I want us to all look at the word uh, together. And if you don't have uh, a, a Bible out and you want to look at the screen, you can, you can join me there too. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, or 10 through 11. It says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So the first sin, that we see uh, aimed at hindering transformation in the life of a believer is the sin of persecution. The sin of persecution. Now, by nature, uh, persecution is not intended to be a pleasant experience or else it wouldn't be called persecution. Uh, Persecution involves suffering of some sort. It involves severe pain. And the early church, they knew persecution. We read the book of Acts and we see how believers were uh, displaced from their homes, uh, thrown into jail, uh, treated um, as outsiders, not allowed the basic necessities of society because of their commitment to Christ. And then all throughout the history of the church, we see that the church never really thrived in in sort of the way that that we're used to in American culture. Rather, it was always a victim of severe persecution, of oppressive forces and ideologies pushing against uh, the Christian culture. And a lot of that came through severe violence and, and suffering. Um, and this is happening in, in, in the day and age that we live in today. You can go to persecution.com and see how the voice of the martyrs is, 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 is writing these stories of Christian brothers and sisters this day and age that are experiencing great persecution because of their commitment to Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, get this, on account of him. Now, when Jesus says this, he's, he's not condoning persecution. Rather, Jesus is brutally aware of the reality that awaits all of his followers. Why? Because as Jesus says, the same forces that opposed him and nailed him to the cross will be the same forces that will oppose you. And if you enter into life with me, you're going to suffer like me. And Jesus lets us know that the most visible form of this oppression, of this opposition, is persecution, inflicting punishment, 
suffering, pain, discomfort, even death because of a person's commitment to Christ. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their commitment to him and their allegiance to him and his way of life. Now, this is important to clarify because if we don't, what will end up happening is we'll justify our momentary pain and suffering in a way that God never intended us to do so. Here's what I mean. when, When we sin against God, there are consequences for our sin. There's no way around that. There's earthly consequences and there's spiritual consequences. Murder, there are consequences, just punishment. Uh, You get thrown into jail, you receive the right end of justice. That is not persecution. Uh, uh, When time and time again you, you fail to uphold the expectations on your job description and you experience rebuke and correction, that is not persecution. That's an invitation to repent and work unto the glory of God. Uh, when you claim ownership over your body and you say, I can do whatever I want with my body because it belongs to me, what you just did there is you removed God from the throne and you've made yourself the God of your life. And the decisions that you make from that place without consulting God or submitting to his ways, uh, the decisions you make from that place, the consequences that you receive are not persecution. It's just the punishment, the infliction upon ourselves that we experience from separating ourselves from God. Hear me, it's not God out to get you. It's the consequence of sin. It's the, the, ta- it's the tasting of the fruit of death. Now, the only persecution that Jesus blesses is the one that's on account for his name. He says, for righteousness sake, because of their faith in him, blessings to those who are actively pursuing and living in the kingdom of righteousness. Uh, Now, if you recall, the the fourth beatitude said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what does this idea of righteousness mean? Because Jesus says that only those that are persecuted on account of this righteousness will be blessed. Well, the first idea is the idea of how God will execute justice. His, his plan to save the world and make everything right again. We know that there's a lot of wrongs out there. God will make everything new and restore the world and make it right. Um, uh, this idea of righteousness includes justice for those who've experienced injustice. In this case, this sort of Roman oppression of a, of a bigger empire, demoralizing and oppressing this small nation of, of Israel. And they're crying out for justice. They're calling, crying out for righteousness. God, will you do right by us? The third idea and, and the most prominent idea that we see in scriptures is the idea of personal righteousness. Uh, doing right in the eyes of God, Uh, the desire to live a life that honors God and isn't entangled by sin. If you remember this quote by Craig Bloomberg, he says, righteousness is a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. A desire to see God's standards, God's way established and obeyed in every area of life. And Jesus says that when you pursue allegiance to me and you place your faith in me and you uh, enter into this life of desiring to establish my way of living in every area of life and you experience persecution for that, if you experience pushback for that, if you experience opposition for that, he says, blessed are you. Now, what's clear about this is that this isn't an invisible desire. It's not this invisible desire like, man, I really desire that, but 
I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Or this invisible desire, like, that would be a really good thing. Let me think about that later. No, this is a visible desire. And the reason we know this is because Jesus goes on to say, uh, after the Beatitudes, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that others may see. Let your desire for righteousness, let your desire to be more like Jesus in every single area of your life be so visible that it begins to light up the darkness that other people are entangled in. So that they would give glory to your father who is in heaven. And I think one of the dangers that we face in our day and age, and this has been my temptation, is that we can be so consumed with the idea of Jesus internally, but there's no real visible desire to do what Jesus did, if we're honest, and to pursue the life Jesus lived. And and we discount ourselves because self-righteousness begins to sneak in and say something like, well, I'm I'm not really that bad. I'm not really that terrible. I'm, I'm doing the Basics, I'm going to church, I'm tithing, I'm showing up to group, and, 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 and there's no real internal desire to establish God's standards in every single area of life. And what Jesus is, is doing is, is he's not instructing us to pursue persecution. Rather, he's inviting us to make him central. Uh, he's inviting us to prioritize him above everything this world has to offer and radically and joyfully pursue, uh, uh, pursue him and submit our lives to him. And when persecution comes or if pushback comes or if opposition comes, uh, that's not a marker of my faithfulness to Christ. It just proves it because he said that as I follow him and give my life to him, there will be a measure of opposition. So it's not an invitation to pursue suffering. It's an invitation to make him the center of our lives and follow him with everything that we have. And what's so loving about Jesus is that he gives us a heads up. He says that opposition will await you. And when it happens, don't be surprised. Why? Because it will happen and it happened to all of his disciples. They all experienced gruesome persecution, yet none of them turned from Jesus because the good news of the kingdom of God is that no matter how painful life can be on account for Jesus, it's momentary in comparison to eternity. And what's so amazing about God's kingdom is that our joy isn't defined by our difficult circumstances. We can find joy. We can find life in Christ. So my question is, what does it look like to endure persecution? We'll come back to that in the end. Let's continue reading Matthew 5, 10 through 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Uh, I was walking to, the, to move my car this morning and I had this thought, I was like, man, if this is your first Sunday here, uh, this isn't like, the, you know, maybe the greatest message to walk into. Like, man, persecution and suffering. And, and sometimes the trend can be to overcorrect. Like, let's make this the greatest message ever. But I felt like the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, no, this is an invitation to enter into life with Jesus. And this is what it looks like. And I believe that if this is your first time here, maybe you're watching online and and you're asking yourself, what does life with Jesus look like? I believe that it looks like sometimes 
struggle and suffering and doubt and affliction, but it looks like doing that with God. And where the world will try to give us a framework for how to endure those things, and maybe you've experienced this because I have too, those things fall short. We're offered a relationship with God that completely transcends our experiences so that your joy and your happiness and your life isn't dictated by external circumstances. It's rooted in Christ. And that's what the Lord is inviting us to this morning, to enter into relationship with him where we're rooted and grounded, not in what's going on out there, but in a God who is unshakable. So the second sin is a lot more subtle. It's what's called uh, the black eyes of sins. You really just don't see it coming. It's implied in this text, and it's also a key subject that Jesus taught against, and that is the, sin, the subtle sin of self-righteousness. The subtle sin of self-righteousness. Now, the reason it's subtle is because, as I've heard one pastor say, self-righteousness is a lot like bad breath. No one thinks they have it, uh, but we all do. Uh, self-righteousness is a lot like bad breath. No one thinks they have it, and it's hard for you to tell that you have it. And with self-righteousness, like bad breath, I mean, uh, unless you're married to that person, no one's going up to somebody saying like, hey, you have really bad breath. Is there anything you do? No, I don't have any governments on me. No one does that. Uh, And and, and yet what's so crazy about self-righteousness, like bad breath, is that everyone can tell that you have it. But no one actually brings it up. It's, it's really hard to bring up. Now, the reason why this is tragic is because God hates self-righteousness. The reason this is tragic is because Jesus spends a whole chapter in Matthew chapter 23 condemning self-righteousness. So what is self-righteousness? Well, self-righteousness is, is the idea that we can produce within ourselves right standing with God. Um, It's the idea that we can produce within ourselves a life that we call good according to our own standards because we've become the judge of our lives and we firmly believe that the life that we're living is acceptable and that God accepts us. And in the Christian life, this is an incredibly dangerous and deadly posture to adopt Because when you think that you have it all together, or you think that you're good with God, reality will reveal that that is not true. And that self-righteousness doesn't connect you closer to God. It actually produces separation. It's a deception from the enemy that makes us think that we're just good enough with God to live life without him. But we're also just good enough with him to fall back on him If anything ever goes wrong, that's not a relationship with God. That's a relationship with your version of God. And what self-righteous living will do is begin to portray and picture, uh, portray and paint a picture of God that's nowhere in the Bible. A God that is most pleased with us according to our own standards and doesn't speak against us and doesn't judge us. And then this begins to inform the way we view the world. Now, Jesus spoke against this attitude. This is what he says in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He said, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves as they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, which is a, a high priest, Jewish high priest, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not, not, I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I bring this up because Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, not self-righteousness, not obnoxious living, uh, not you pushing back friends and family because of the way that you think they should be following Christ. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And the people who experience opposition in their life and say it was for righteousness' sake and say it was because of their commitment to Jesus, we need to be very careful and carefully examine it because often what we find is that our opposition has more to do with our standard of righteousness instead of the way of Jesus. Writer and pastor Aaron Block gives us a list of eight kinds of self-righteous people. Number one, he says, is the know-it-all. Thinking that you know more about the Bible than everyone else and looking down on the less enlightened. Number two, the mind reader. Believing that you can read all motives, few of which are as pure as yours. The predictor, predicting how a person will respond to every situation, holding out little hope of good behavior. The labeler, assuming that a single error is symptomatic of a person's entire life and justification for writing them off. The user, reaping from people's strengths but damning them for their weaknesses. The loather, refusing to forgive an offense, mulling over often and failing to seek reconciliation. The super sanctified, believing you are more sanctified than others and the best friend of Jesus, believing that you've got something special going on with Jesus that's superior to all others. Now, remember what we said earlier. Self-righteousness is a lot like bad breath. We all have it. And if I just read that list and you immediately began thinking, oh, that person's number one or that person's number three, you've just entered into this practice of self-righteousness. And that's not there to condemn you or to shame you. That is the Holy Spirit inviting us to examine our hearts and see areas of our life that can be brought to him so that we can become more like him. That's the good news of the kingdom of God is that he doesn't just expose sin and leave you there so that you can feel shame. Rather, he shines light over our lives so that we can be transformed. So why do we become self-righteous? Well, as we said earlier, there's this mechanism of sin at work in the human heart that creates the type of person that believe they are autonomous. And that was essentially the sin in the garden, autonomy. Let me be the judge, the ruler over my life. Let me call the shots. It is the sin of self-governance. Believing that, no, I will not let God govern my life. I will govern myself. And when you enter into this autonomy, you are exposing yourself to self-righteousness. Why? Because God has been removed as judge, and now you're the judge of your standards and other people's standards. And this, this is what leads to all sorts of moral superiorities, scripture superiority, lifestyle superiority, where you, where you begin to boast of your life on, on social media and with others, proving to, to people this is what life should look like. And why is self-righteousness bad? 
Why is it dangerous? Why does God hate it? I believe it's because it creates distance by propping up man-made authority structures instead of submitting ourselves to the word of God. It harms others by looking down on them and degrading them and devaluing them instead of honoring and dignifying them because we're image bearers created in the likeness of God. I believe it harms ourselves because we become so occupied with looking internally that we rarely look out to God or seek him. What's the solution? The solution is to humble ourselves before the Lord and empty ourselves of self-righteousness and be filled with his grace and the righteousness of Christ. In other words, being so empty that we are filled with the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you have your Bible open, look at Matthew chapter 5 because this is really cool. The first beatitude and the last beatitude go together. There's eight of them. And the, and the first one is Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last beatitude is Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see it? Do you see the similarity? That those who are poor in spirit, those are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. And those who are poor in spirit are those who have been so emptied of themselves and their own efforts to justify themselves that they live life not according to their own worth or righteousness, but for the righteousness of Christ. And when they do that, they experience persecution, but the kingdom of God is theirs. It's the poor in spirit who who inherit the kingdom of God, not the self-righteous. To be poor in spirit is is the opposite of self-righteousness. To be poor in spirit means that you find your righteousness in Christ and you recognize that you have nothing to offer but a holy God. So you live your life in a, in, in a submissive posture towards him in every single area of life. Uh, to be poor in spirit means that you don't sit on the throne of your heart and you're not the judge who caused the shot. You look out to the judge, the ruler, the authority, and let him direct every single area of your life. To be poor in spirit means that we can't buy God's favor and we recognize that there's nothing that I can do to change his mind. To be poor in spirit means to realize how great our, our, our debt of sin is before him and how great his grace is towards that. Being right with God, knowing that there's no way to God except through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And this righteousness, Jesus says, makes you glad, fills you with joy, satisfies you in a way that self-righteous standards can never do. It doesn't lead to bitter angerness or hurt. It leads to satisfaction and life with God. He goes on to say, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, you will experience opposition. You will experience suffering for being identified with Christ. And when that happens, rejoice and be glad. This has less to do with an emotion and more of an attitude that you willingly take on. That despite what comes, I will choose faith and trust in God and cause my heart to rejoice and be glad and let my words and the songs I sing about him take me to a place that maybe my emotions aren't there yet. The question is, well, how do we get there? And what does this look like? I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. So after Matthew, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament. I want you to turn there with me, and we're going to look at verses 
16 through 25. Acts chapter, look at the, the paper turning, come on. Amen. Acts 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune teller. Fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and they had brought him to the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What's happening here? Paul and Silas are unjustly arrested for healing a traffic girl and setting her free. And the locals are furious because she brought much profit through fortune telling. And so uh, because their means of money has now been removed from them, they are outraged and they conspire a plan to get Paul and Silas thrown into jail. They accuse Paul and Silas foreigners coming into their land, um, uh, bringing about customs that were not lawful for them to practice. They're, 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 the way of Jesus just didn't go with their Roman way. And so they order them to be locked in jail. A riot breaks out, and before being committed to solitary confinement, they're stripped naked and beaten with rods. And once they've been heavily physically afflicted, they're chained to a stone wall. History tells us that their feet and uh, their ankles and hands would have been chained to a wall, sitting on a cold floor in the darkest room in the innermost place of this darkened cell. And this persecution that they're experiencing is because of their visible allegiance to Jesus. The affliction and suffering that they're undergoing is not because of some sort of invisible, internal, me and Jesus have a good thing going on, but nobody knows about it. It's because they see a girl who was oppressed by demonic forces, being mistreated, victimized, and used for monetary gain, And when Paul says he had become greatly annoyed, I believe what uh, that means is that he became so frustrated with the sinful condition and the oppressive forces that were keeping her in bondage that he speaks the good news of the kingdom of God and uses the good news of Jesus' name to set her free. And why are they being thrown into jail? Because of their visible commitment and allegiance to Jesus. Their willingness to push back the kingdom of darkness because they're a light on a hill that cannot be hidden or put out. And they are for Jesus. They're with Jesus and they're going to do what Jesus did. Persecution they're experiencing is because of their visible allegiance to Jesus. And this is what the next verse says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Beaten, stripped of their clothes, ankles and hands, gripped tightly against the cold stone wall in a dark place. And in that place, 
They're praying. They're singing hymns. One pastor calls this an act of defiant adoration. You can take away my clothes. You you can be on the verge of taking away my life, but you're not going to take away my savior. Why? Because he lives inside of me. He lived for me. He rose from the dead for me. My life is no longer identified with my painful moments or my most glorious moments. It's firmly rooted and anchored in Jesus. And they're praying and they're singing. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Church, what does it look like to rejoice and to be glad in the midst of afflictions and suffering and persecution when it comes? Sing and praise God that your life is worthy of being opposed like Jesus was. They sing as a way of using their words to take their heart to a place that they want to be, but they currently are not yet. They're singing and praying to take their minds off of their affliction and set their mind and their attention on God. When we sing and when we pray and when we worship, we're singing to take our heart and our mind to a place, uh, uh, using our body to take us to a place that our heart desperately wants to go to, but maybe we're having trouble doing. When we raise our hands in worship and we actually say these words out loud, we're taking our body to a place. We're uh, leading our heart to a place to worship God using our body. That's why I encourage everyone when we're worshiping, when we're singing, uh, take, use your body. Stand, use your words, lift up your hands in a place of surrender. Why? Because we're using our body to lead our hearts to worship God. And sometimes I stand there and I'm not, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm, my, my heart's not into it. I feel the same things that you feel. The same stressors and the weight of life. Uh, I, I, I'm right there with you, but, but I, I, I choose to sing out these words so that I'm not consumed in my thoughts. And I choose to raise my hands as sort of this declaration uh, to lead my heart and my soul to a place that I want to be with God. That's why it's surrender. We're surrendering our lives. We're surrendering our heart to the Lord and doing so uh, intentionally to take ourselves to a place that maybe we're not feeling. And I believe when they're singing and praising God, I don't think that they, they, their heart was in this place of like, man, this is great or this is awesome. Maybe, but when they sing and they praise and, 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 and they're doing it together, we know that it takes our minds off of ourselves and helps direct our attention to a good God and reminds us that he is there with us. They pray to connect with God and commune with God. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that our joy and gladness does not have to be defined by our external circumstances. Though our lives can feel like they're in chains, our prayers are not. And singing and praying to God miraculously emboldens and empowers the believer to become more like Christ, to suffer like Christ. And here's what happens next. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. 
But the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, the jailer and his entire family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. One thing leads to another, and now the jailer that was inflicting the persecution and the suffering becomes the one that is testifying and worshiping the living God that he tried to silence in Paul and Silas. And look at verse 33 again. Look at that word rejoiced. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, one of the reasons why I believe Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when you experience persecution, rejoice and be glad when you suffer with Christ, is because persecution and suffering will, can lead to miracles, signs, and wonders if you allow it. Persecution, suffering for Christ can lead to miracle signs and wonders if we allow ourselves to embrace it. This miracle of breakthrough, the miracle of the whole prison experiencing the power of God, the miracle of an ordinary worker opposing God, experiencing the good news of the kingdom of God, and not just for himself, but leading his entire family to the Lord. And remember what we said earlier. When God transforms your heart, it's not an isolated experience so that you can be right with God and go about your day. No, what we see here is that when God transforms our heart, it's so that we can transform the world around us. A jailer far from God hears the good news of the kingdom of God and takes it home and now his whole family knows the Lord. And for this reason, Jesus concludes the Beatitudes by saying, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Don't light your lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand. Let it, let it shine bright everywhere you go. Let your light shine before others so that they can see, visibly see your good works, visibly see your allegiance to Jesus, visibly see your commitment to him. And when they see that, he says, they'll give glory to your father who's in heaven. Church, let's be the reason why people in our community, our work, our spheres of influence glorify the Father. Because they see Christ, the hope of glory at work inside of you. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Now, remember, the Beatitudes, these eight blessings, are an invitation to live life as a kingdom citizen. Uh, They're an invitation to first repent, And second, an invitation to receive. This is an invitation to repent of self-righteousness and receive the righteousness of Christ. This is an invitation to repent from finding power in yourself to overcome the world and navigate this world successfully and receive power from Christ, his spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in you. This is an invitation to repent of the darkness that you've been entangled in. And receive the light of Christ. And it's also a commission 
to go and be that light that directs others to the transforming power of Jesus. Let's close in prayer.